Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. What do you see? Adult content. Keep looking. I see adult content that people might be offended by. What do you see? I see binge mode. The binge mode. I see that if people are offended by adult content, they shouldn't listen to binge mode. But if they like the show Game of Thrones, they should listen to it. Do you believe me now, Clegane? Do you believe we're here for a reason? Do you know what kept me standing through all those years in exile? Faith. Not in any gods. Not in myths and legends. In myself. In Daenerys Targaryen. The world hadn't seen a dragon in centuries until my children were born. The Dothraki hadn't crossed the sea. Any sea. They did for me. I was born to rule the Seven Kingdoms. And I will. And welcome to Binge Mode. Yeah. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished requesting some soon-to-be brother-in-law's advice about fingers in the bum. Just try it first before you have an opinion on it. Have a chat, you know? Yeah. It's a Ringer staff writer and your maester. Yeah. Jason Concepcion. Jason? Yes. A wise man once said that you should never believe a thing simply because you want to believe it. Which wise man said this? I don't remember. Are you trying to present your own statements as ancient wisdom again? I would never do that to you. Thank you. (laughs) I will, however, podcast with you. Guys, if you are new to Binge Mode, proudly on the Ringer Podcast Network. We will catch you up very quickly. We have episode breakdowns of all 62 previous Game of Thrones episodes waiting for you to listen to during your next uncomfortable family gathering. And we are going to keep our Thrones discussion going throughout season seven. We're going to deep dive one episode at a time, one week at a time. Spoiler slash speculation warning as always, even though we no longer know what the future of the story holds, we will still be going very deep on details from the show and the books alike, discussing the scenes for next week's episode, sharing our predictions, speculating freely about theories and future occurrences. So put on your lipstick and give us a kiss. Mama. Mama. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's time to break down season seven, episode three. The Queen's Justice. Jason. Yeah. Surely you haven't traveled all this way to break faith with House Binge Mode. absolutely not. I have not done that. Surely you are here to offer up a brief refresher on what transpired in this third installment. So let's take a quick trip down our very own King's Road. On Dragonstone, King John and his extremely small retinue, including Davos, arrived to treat with Danny. Watching them from the bluffs is Melisandre. Varys approaches. She admits that she's hiding from John, who you will remember threatened to hang her last time he saw her. Danny and John finally meet. Yes. She wants moment. him to bend that knee. But to be clear, 
not for the Lord's kiss. Whoa. At not least yet. not yet. <laughs> not yet, guys. He wants her help fighting the Night King, the true enemy in the North, even though he's very bad at explaining the whole thing about the Night King and the army dead. She's like, who, what? Then after Varys enters with grave news, Danny confines Jon to the island. That news, the destruction of Yara's fleet and the capture of Ilarius and, and the Sand Snakes. Later, Tyrion finds Jon brooding handsomely on the bluffs. He Extremely asked, handsomely. Tyrion is even like, why the fuck? Extremely handsomely. Can I be up here by myself and not feel... Even worse, he asks John if there's anything he can do for him. John tells him about the dragon glass. Tyrion convinces Danny to let John mine the glass. She promises to provide King John with men and supplies to extract and transport the glass. Danny wants to use her dragons to sink Euron's fleet. Her advisors argue against this. Instead, her war council focuses on the attack on Casterly Rock. Meanwhile, in the Narrow Sea, Theon. Looking the color of like spoiled yogurt, kind of disgusting, is pulled from the water by one of the few, very few, we hear two or three surviving ironborn ships from Yara's fleet. They are not thrilled to see him. In fact, they consider his survival disgraceful because it is a clear indication that he did not fight to save his sister. In King's Landing, you're on triumphant. He drags his human spoils, Yara, Ilaria, and Tyene, through the city to the throne room. He places Ilaria and Tyene, his promised gift, at Cersei's feet. Cersei agrees to marry Euron. Uh, fine print, after the war is over. Then Euron asks Jamie whether a finger in the butt during lovemaking is something the queen is amenable to. In the dungeons, Cersei kisses Tyene with the long farewell lipstick, which Kyburn apparently reverse engineered. She wants Ilaria to Kyburn. watch. Kyburn! <laughs> She wants Ilaria to watch her daughter die. Aroused by her act of revenge, Cersei goes to Jaime for some hot murder sex, blowing the Kingslayer in his solar deeply, hand on the butt, getting that leverage. In the morning, she lets a handmaiden see them together. Just to make clear that, yeah, we banged, she asks for a change of sheets. Tycho Nestoris arrives to sell the crown's debts to the Iron Bank. Cersei convinces him for a two-week stay, after which... The Lannisters will pay their debts, as you have heard us say many times. They're always saying it. They're always saying that. They're always saying it. Up in Winterfell, Sansa has taken the North well in hand. How much food do we have? How much do we need? What happens if people flee to Winterfell? Will we be able to care for them? Why aren't these breastplates covered in leather? It's going to get cold. Littlefinger, extremely aroused. Yeah, he's like, wow. (laughs) What did I do here? You really know how to give an order. (laughs) Then gives the really the most unhinged and I just took Molly and am tripping soliloquy of his career. But unbelievable shit. He is interrupted by Is that Brad Stock's music? Bran is back. There is a brief and really beautiful touching moment when Sansa and her brother reunite. And then quickly the tone changes. Because Bran has changed. His experiences have changed him. And there is an inhuman quality to him now. He's not Bran Stark. He's not the heir to Winterfell. He's the Three-Eyed Raven. He can see everything, guys. (laughs) Except... Apparently, how to explain what the Three-Eyed Raven is. In the Godswood, he deeply unnerves his sister and viewers alike by bringing up, unprompted, her wedding to Ramsay. 
at the Citadel. Jorah! Mal's husband is cured! Oh, man, thank God. As thank a reward. The gods. Thank the gods. As a reward or a punishment, Ebro's in the morning tasks Sam with copying a collection of damaged scrolls. I wonder if he'll find anything useful in there. Hmm. At Casterly Rock, using Tyrion's route through the sewers, the Unsullied take the castle. Only, not all the Lannisters are there because they are attacking, bum, 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 Highgarden in the Reach. Jamie with Bronn, Randall Tarly, and Dickon. 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 Storm <laughs> Highgarden. The Reach is out of the game. Jamie begins packing up the Tyrell's gold to send over to King's Landing. Later, he allows Lady Olena to drink poison. Give me those bells! Give us those bells, Mad Axe, for the Queen of Thorns! It's a mercy, you know, because Cersei wanted to do all sorts of wild shit. She repays this kindness by using her final moments to call Cersei a monster and tell Jamie, boastfully, it was me that killed Joffrey. Tell Cersei I did it. She's proud. She should be. Man, I miss her already. She's was great. What a true one. What yeah. an original. Unbelievable. Mal? Yeah! From what I gather, <laughs> you consider yourself more of a revolutionary than a monarch. It's true. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the core of it by sticking with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is symbolism for substance. can be projected in many ways, but once you use a dragon, there's really nothing left to say. So sometimes you have to threaten someone with the dragon. You have to just show them the dragon. This is the dragon. This is what it can do. Do you want this to breathe fire on you? That's the difference between symbolism and substance. Danny and John. Danny treats her meeting with King John as an opportunity to lord the symbols of her power over him. She wants yes. to intimidate him from the moment he steps onto the beach. He arrives with Davos, handful of very overdressed Northern Guardsmen. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> Pack for the weather. Pack for where you're going. <laughs> to be fair, literally all they brought was clothing. Yeah. Like, no direwolf. <laughs> come on, guys. We'll get to that in a bit. Uh, they are met by Tyrion, Missy, and some very tough looking Dothraki blood riders. Yes. Slight aside, nothing can top dragons for intimidation factor, but we can't underrate the historic nature of the Dothraki being on Westerosi soul for the Such first time in history. Missy tells John that he and his men must disarm. It's a ridiculous request. It would be suicide for John and his like four dudes right. to try and cut through X amount of Dothraki to get to Danny. This is a request that's meant to convey John's powerlessness in this situation, even to defend his own life. Yes. John agrees. John, no! Don't John, agree. Don't do that. Don't hand over Longclaw. You told Mormont. Yeah. You never let it go. It's bad. As they walk up the causeway to the castle, Danny's dragons are twisting and dipping in the beautiful. sky. It's One could beautiful. not imagine a better display of Danny's strength and of the legitimacy of her claim. She's the blood of the dragon, a trueborn Targaryen, the mother of dragons. And if you want proof, just fucking look up. Look up when Rhaegal, Rhaegal, named for Rhaegar Targaryen, yep. in a scene so on the nose it could be a pimple on senior picture day, <laughs> buzzes John after the king in the north says, I'm not a Stark. Tyrion tells him, I'd say you get used to them, but you never really do. Come, their mother is waiting. Symbolism is very important. It's very important, especially when you use it to convey that you, and it should be obvious by now that John does not feel comfortable conveying this, are a special person. Yes. P.S. John, you're the king. You're going to meet a person who has magical beasts. <laughs> yes. Bring your magical beast. Yes. Bring ghosts. Bring fucking ghosts. He's the sigil of your fucking house. What are you doing, dude? Why are you not bringing him? Learn like a single thing from Rob. <sighs> oh, Jesus Christ. Next time. Anyway, 
Danny receives John in the Dragonstone throne room, and it's a cavernous, forbidding space, specifically designed by whoever built it to make people feel insignificant before the power of the dragons. These double, thick double doors open into the room, and the doors are like 20 feet tall, and the ceiling hangs like so high overhead that you, you never even see it in the shot. And at the end of this long hall is Daenerys sitting on a throne and the throne is on top of a riser and she's looking down at you from like 15 feet and then Missy hails her visitors with a particularly enthusiastic <laughs> recitation of Danny's titles, titles, titles. You know the damn words. You know the damn words. John, where's your hype man? Davos steps up with Jon Snow. He's a king in the north. But if <laughs> Such a great moment. It's really It's great. honestly genuinely like extremely funny because it's so Missy good. just rolls them all off. She has like a real, I mean, she She's a plays pro. into it. She's got that script down and Tyrion's smirking. Yeah. And then John's just like. <laughs> he looks dude. back. He looks back like. Davos, you got uh, me here, dude. Right. Well, I think the other thing is like he's not sure that she's done. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. it was like legitimately there's yeah. like 10 things in there. So great. So great. The meeting is a clash between symbolism and substance. Danny expects John to be totally bowled over, awed by everything he's seen, and realizing the cause of Northern independence to be hopeless, to then bend the knee. And she pointedly addresses him as my lord, not your grace, right. in order to underline his inferior right. status. Which every Davos points out. Yes. Every interaction is meant to communicate this to him. John, meanwhile is on Dragonstone for literally a substance, Dragonglass, which he needs to fight the army of the dead. And when John refuses to kneel, Danny becomes petulant. He says, you know, I, I, I'm here to ask your help and you need my help too, essentially. Like, right. in not so many words. And Danny says, uh, did you see the dragons <laughs> flying overhead when you arrived? John, I did. And did you see the Dothraki, all of whom have sworn to kill for me? John, they're hard to miss. And then Danny says, but still, I need your help. And then Danny makes her argument. Her argument is all about herself. She talks about herself in the third person and why people must follow her. She says, you know, I was born on Dragonstone. Not that I remember it. We fled before Robert's assassins could find us. Robert was your father's best friend. No, I wonder if your father knew his best friend sent assassins to murder a baby girl in her crib. Actually, he did. I mean, not this specific time that she's talking about, but uh, when Ned found out that Robert wanted to send assassins after Danny. He is, he resigned. Right. He was just like, I'm not going to do it. So this is an interesting uh, point that she brings up that you know obviously John doesn't know any, anything about. And she goes on. I spent my life in foreign lands. So many men have tried to kill me. I don't remember all their names. I've been sold like a broodmare. I've been chained and betrayed, raped and defiled. Do you know what kept me standing through all those years in exile? Faith. And then you think, oh, this is this will be interesting. And then she says, this not in any gods, not in myths and legends, in myself. In Daenerys Targaryen, the world hadn't seen dragons in centuries until my children were born. The Dothraki, the Dothraki hadn't crossed the sea, any sea. They did for me. I was born to rule the Seven Kingdoms, and I will. Davos, meanwhile, his defense of John is about why people chose to follow Jon Snow. And it's telling, it's very telling, by the way, how uncomfortable this appears to make Jon. It's kind of like a, the flip side of when Viserys complained to Jorah back in season one that no one has ever given me what they gave to her in that tent. Never. People give John this. Um, and it's a strange thing to point out. Davos says, you don't know. This is after, uh, you know, the whole conversation with the Night's King had taken place. So Davos says, you don't need to believe him. 
I understand that. It sounds like nonsense. But if Destiny has brought Daenerys Targaryen back to our shores, it also made Jon Snow king of the North. You were the first to bring Dothraki to Westeros. He is the first to make allies of wildlings and Northmen. He was named Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. He was named king in the North, not because of his birthright. He has no birthright. He's a damn bastard. All those hard sons of bitches chose him as their leader because they believe in him. All those things you don't believe in. He faced those things. He fought those things for the good of his people. He took a knife in the heart for, the, for his people. He gave his own. And there John shoots Davos look like, no, 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 no. Right. Not, not this. And it's an interesting question. Why doesn't John want to embrace this incredibly powerful symbol? He conquered death. In some ways, that question gets to this fundamental contrast that you're highlighting between who he and Danny are as people yeah. and certainly how they're positioning their cases, not only to each other, but to the world at large. Danny thinks she deserves it. Right. And John feels unworthy. And that is diametrically opposed. Yeah. Not Ice only sense, yes, not only sense of self, right. but sense of the world. And so, and of course, as we've talked about many times before, John's position there is much more in line with yeah. the character that George tends to reward yes. in his story. The the reluctant ruler, the one who feels unworthy even if he or she isn't. There's also the symbolism of the Northmen riding into the south. Yeah. Tyrion very briefly reminds John of this powerful symbolic history. And then John later brings it up to Danny. These exact same facts. You know, she references Torn Stark, bending yep. the knee, Aegon, her ancestor. There is this really powerful presence throughout their exchange and really throughout the entire episode, episode with other characters as well of... Basically, sins of the father yes. talk. Don't hold my father's sins against me. Okay, fair. Don't hold my ancestors' promises yes. against me. Yeah. We're our own people. Now, Danny, of course, should be like more all in on this logic than any other character on the show because one of her identifying traits is that she wants to be the break the wheel person. But right. This is really tough for her symbolically because still one of the most powerful things working in her favor now that she's finally arrived in Westeros, now that she's finally at this next phase of her journey, is her family name. Yeah. She says this to John. I'm the last Targaryen, Jon Snow. Well, uh, like, right. no. Not but, exactly. But, but we'll, <laughs> we'll get into that more later. Yeah. But think about this. The they're all just spokes on the wheel person is now saying, I'm a spoke on the wheel. Right. This is fascinating. Yeah. And later, John throws this kind of logic back in her face. As far as I can tell, your claim to the throne rests entirely on your father's name. My own father fought to overthrow the Mad King. Of course, oh, yeah. every single line and moment of their exchange and John's just presence on Dragonstone, yes. his ancestral home, even though he doesn't know it, it's all so charged and so rich with this symbolic energy about who, mm -hmm. who they really are to each other, what their shared history really is. They just don't realize it. But this idea is actually a much more natural fit for John than it is for Danny because John never thought he would even be a spoke on the wheel. Right. He spent his life never even thinking about the wheel in the first place. It was just 100%. always, I don't have access to that's, the wheel. Th that's the thing about John is he doesn't want to stand out because he's spent his whole life standing out at Winterfell, being the bastard, being outside everything. He just wants to be inside. He wants to be accepted as part of a group. Totally. Not 
a person standing aside from a group. And yet, so often that's where he finds yes. himself. Even when he finally gets acceptance, that then comes with some sort of burden that yep. casts him aside again. And of course, like back at the beginning of the season when he was trying to bring the car starts and the umbers back into the fold, this idea of fathers and children, sins, yep. family legacy, who should be punished for what, that was something John brought up. So of course, this is all familiar to him. Think about also Danny's offer to name John Warden of the North yeah. if he bends the knee. This is now the second time that a monarch has offered John something before Stannis at Castle Black right. offered to legitimize him. To give him something that basically throughout his entire life as a child, as a bastard, would have been a dream, a dream. to him. And now... I mean, look, he's king, so he's good. Right. But like also, it's not even a conversation he can indulge. It's not even a thought that he can consider because his circumstances forbid it. He has to focus on the bigger goal. What's that goal? Well, who is the real enemy? And it's really amazing to watch the discussion between John and Danny and, and, and John and Tyrion and everyone play out about the army of the dead, figures of speech, yeah. like the greatest threat in the known world is literally just an idea. To Danny, a construct, something that someone is saying to her. Right. That's it. And, you know, we should be asking, like, should Tyrion and Varys know more? I mean, they were in Westeros through season right. four, certainly receiving ravens with alarming details yeah. about what was developing up north. It's not like they have no information. Flip side, they were gone by the time hard home occurred. Yes. So, Which is an important distinction. Yes, it is an important distinction. Should they have prepped Danny a little bit more? Maybe, but Ultimately, this serves as a really powerful reminder of the challenge that John is facing. Yeah. Think of how hard it's been for Sam to convince people of what he needs to get them to believe. This is just one more reminder that even people as knowledgeable as the ones John is having a conversation with now aren't necessarily going to be receptive to what he's saying. You know, thank God for Davos, who was there for the assist. He says, if we don't put aside our enmities and band together, we will die. And then it doesn't matter whose skeleton sits the Iron Throne. Tyrion's response to that is basically stating that the right. thing they're asking for, bending the knee, is Right. It's just symbolic. It's not a big thing. Okay, then just do it then. Right. Why does it matter if you're really worried about this other thing? What harm could it do? Just bend the knee. John knows, to his credit, that it means everything. That it means saying fundamentally, if he bends the knee, that the Great War is not actually the most important thing. That right. he is willing to compromise his principles to, to shirk the faith and belief that his people put in him just because these people are asking him yeah. to and because he needs a shortcut to get what he wants. He's not willing to do that. And really, what more do we need to know about John and Danny, about ice and fire, which we yep. hear Melisandre actually say in this episode in a cool moment, than this exchange that occurs later on when they're outside. You've been talking to Tyrion, John says. He is my hand, Danny replies. He enjoys talking. And then Danny says, we all enjoy what we're good at. And John says with the deepest yeah. sadness and the heaviest weight, I don't. I have never felt closer to Jon Snow than that moment. Agonizing. Exactly. What about Tyrion? Because he's there with Jon and Danny. He is obviously executing a battle plan against Cersei and Jaime that will have ramifications later in the episode. What about our guy? You know, Tyrion, this is another clash between symbolism and substance. Jon, of course, is wrapped up in his mission, stopping the Night King. 
he can't see anything else. He's so close to this mission that he doesn't even realize when someone's trying to offer him something, which Tyrion is. Uh, but they're speaking two different languages because Tyrion is still speaking in this kind of like symbolic language. Tyrion walks up to the cliffs. He finds John brooding up there. Um, and John notes, I'm a prisoner on this island. Tyrion says, I wouldn't say you're a prisoner on the island. You're free to walk the castle, the beaches, to go wherever you want. This is Tyrion being cute, by the way. John says, except to my ship. You took my ship. And Tyrion says, I wouldn't say we took your ship. John says, I'm not playing word games with you. The dead will come for us all. And Tyrion says, why don't you worry about my missing fleet and murdered allies, and I'll figure out what to do about your walking dead men. John, after recalling Tyrion's season one quip about grumpkins and snarks and the way he was so dismissive about uh, the history of the long night and things that might exist beyond the wall, um, John continues, he says, you said it was all nonsense. And Tyrion says it was nonsense and everybody knew it. But then Mormont saw them, you saw them, and I trust the eyes of an honest man more than I trust what everybody knows. And John says, how do I convince people who don't know me that an enemy that they don't believe in is coming to kill them? Good question, Tyrion says. Yeah, I know it's a good question. I'm looking for an answer. <laughs> Tyrion then goes Love on to describe that. how a, a threat like the Night's King can be so dire and so existential that people actually would welcome another danger that's more present, that's more looming, simply because it's one that they're familiar with, that they, it's, you know, it's a symbol that they can comprehend. And Tyrion says, people's minds aren't made for problems that large. The White Walkers, the Night King, Army of the Dead. It's almost a relief to confront a comfortable, familiar monster like my sister. <laughs> Focus on what's practical, like Dragonglass. John knows how his mission looks. He says, everybody told me. <laughs> everybody. Even, everybody. Even 11 year, 10 or 11-year-old Loudly and often. Loudly. <laughs> Everyone told me to learn from my father's mistakes. Don't go south. Don't go answering a summons from the Mad King's daughter, a foreign invader. And here I am, a northern fool. And then we get that idea again that children are not their fathers, Tyrion says. Lucky for all of us. And all, man, there's just, they're really setting it up, aren't they? This from yes. Tyrion <laughs> is probably his best moment in the show and supremely wise and valuable. John wants to be seen for who he is and what he's fighting for. But is he willing to do that for someone else? And Tyrion makes his approach. While you're here, you might consider asking some of them what they think of the Mad King's daughter. She protects people from monsters, just as you do. It's why she came here, and she's not about to head north to fight an enemy she's never seen or on the word of a man she doesn't know after a single meeting. It's not a reasonable thing to ask, and Such that's a good so point. true. You're coming with a crazy story, Jon Snow, right. and no one knows you. So just give it a couple days. I feel like the one thing John should be more prepared for at this point is that people aren't going to be ready to hear what he's saying right away. Yeah. Like, even if it's not necessarily specifically like change your plans and come fight with me. I mean, with the wildlings, everything he's gone through, he's met resistance at every turn. Yeah. He should be. Maybe he's just tired, though. He's tired yeah. of fighting. He said this to Sansa 100%. last season. That was why he was so reluctant to go to Winterfell in the first place. Like, I'm, I've, I've been fighting my right. whole life. I'm done now. Well, it's not a luxury he has, but that's also a hard feeling to shake. Yeah. Tyrion's conversation with Danny is also fascinating because he is steering her toward offering John a tentative alliance. And he tells her, give the king in the north a symbolic win. Right. For the possibility of a greater substantive gain down the road. He says, the reason I believe Jon Snow is he's here. All of his advisors would have told him not to come. I would have told him not to come. And he's here anyway. You don't have to believe him. Let him mind the dragon glass. If he's wrong, 
It's worthless. You didn't even know it was there. It's nothing to you. Give him something by giving him nothing. And then says, keep him occupied while we focus on the task at hand, Casterly Rock. Ah, how about Ah. that? Now, Tyrion does not realize it, but he is deeply compromised in his plan to attack Casterly Rock. He's so focused on the symbolism of Casterly, what it means to him personally, that he can't see that its actual worth is not very much. This is natural, we should say. Tywin, his father, was driven by the responsibility of passing the rock down to the next generation of Lannisters, being a a, a strong steward of the legacy of, of the Lannisters. Tyrion is his father's son, possible Targaryen lineage be damned, <laughs> and he is similarly obsessed with the family seat. But as a means to destroy Lannister power, not sustain it, taking it would mean taking revenge on his father, on Cersei, on Joffrey, and proving definitively by force of arms that he deserved to be the Lord of Castle Rock. And I, you know, I can understand that. Two things, though. The fact that Danny, or at the very least Varys, but preferably both, did not question Tyrion's reasoning is extremely troubling. Yeah. He's like, I want to split the army, sail it all the way around the continent to attack my family home. Either you're too close to this situation or right. like you're a spy. <laughs> right. You know, and, and then he admits, like when he's giving the rundown of the, the whole thing, you know, of how hard it'll be for the unsullied. He says, you know, there, there's not a lot of them. Mm-hmm. They'll be outnumbered. So you send an outnumbered force against a castle. Right. He's literally like, but they're fighting for you. So they'll be tougher somehow. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's not, you know, someone should have spoken up and been like, are you sure this is the right idea? Are you sure you're making this decision for the right reasons? And two, Castle Rock and the Lannister Mines are tapped. Once upon a time, years, a couple years back, they bore gold, silver and other precious metals in abundance. That was the source of the Lannister's wealth and power. Not anymore. Sometime during the reign of King Robert, the Lannister mines ran dry. And at the time of Tywin's death, House Lannister was in debt to the Iron Bank. In his words, a tremendous amount of money. Right. Castle Rock is not actually strategically worth anything. It's a fucking castle with no value. It's just a house on a cliff. The real center of power, the real place where you can move the needle in the realm isn't Castle or even King's Landing. It's High Garden. In the reach, the region that supplies the capital with some significant portion, if not all, of its food, and which has enough portable wealth to get the Provosi bankers off Cersei's back. It's a target that can actually change the fortunes of the war. In other words, Tyrion has ordered an attack on a symbolic target while Jaime, at Hardgarden, has attacked and taken a substantive one. His advice to Danny about John Tyrion's. You didn't even know it was there. Give him something by giving him nothing. It's kind of the same. He's too focused on symbolism and not focused enough on substance. Weird Tyrion episode, like just great lines, great insight, that human touch that we've missed in the thick of it again, but also just taking those L's. Taking L's. He's not a wartime consigliere, as they say in The Godfather. (laughs) Cersei. Yeah. Getting her revenge. Right away, the symbolism is so rich and juicy, much like the things that the common folk of King's Landing are throwing. (laughs) At Yara and Ilaria and Tyeen, the symbolism of the Walk of Atonement, the same people who pelted Cersei with literal shit. Yeah, actual shit. And filth are now cheering Euron, her man, and 
abusing Cersei's enemies. Why? Well, they're not loyal to Cersei, as you have rightly and brilliantly pointed out. They just don't want the city to be attacked right. again. They're, they're going to die if the city is yeah. attacked so in their they're minds. they're like, all right, well, yeah. I guess she hasn't blown us up yet. Yeah. We made it out of that one, okay? So we're good here. Let's hope that stability ensues. And then, of course... There's that moment when Euron and his prisoners make their way into the throne room. Gotta say, I was hoping we'd get another horse shitting. (laughs) I was wondering if that was going to happen. Prolifically on the floor right before entering. Alas, no. But anyway, we still got plenty of other excitement because Ilaria, the look on her face when she sees the mountain, the man who killed Oberyn. She's like, wait, he's still alive? It is horrifying and extremely charged. What is happening here? Who are these enemies? What am I actually dealing with? The terror you see on her face right away. And then there's the symbolism and the symmetry of Cersei using the long farewell lipstick to get her revenge, to get her justice against Ilaria and Tyene. Ilaria killed Marcella. Ilaria killed Cersei's daughter with this poison in this vicious way. And now Cersei is literally returning the favor. She's doing the exact same thing except she's, because she's Cersei, she's up in the ante. She's going to make Ilaria watch. Your daughter will die here in this cell, she says. You'll be watching when she does. And Ilaria and Tyene are gagged and chained. They can't speak. They can't respond. All you can do is watch as their faces kind of distort. You'll be here for the rest of your days. If you refuse to eat, we'll force food down your throat. You will live to watch your daughter rot. Remember when Cersei was talking to Jamie about how she couldn't stop thinking yeah. about what state Marcella's yeah. corpse was in? This is this yeah. is like a disturbing insight into Cersei's psyche. To watch that beautiful face collapse to bone and dust, all the while contemplating the choices you made. Make sure the guards change the torches every few hours, Oof. she says. I don't want her to miss a thing. Chilling. This is completely haunting. Yeah. And then... There's also this interesting moment when Cersei is shitting on Oberyn to make Alaria mad. Yeah. She's trying to get a rise out of her. Why didn't he just finish the job? Again, right. he had Sir Gregor beat. Yeah. Why didn't he just do it? Didn't have to taunt him. What, what does she say? But that wasn't your lover's way, yeah. was it? This is fascinating to me because Cersei is, once again, as always, more interested in sounding like a badass right. in the moment than in paying attention to the substance of what she's saying to the core point of her own argument and taking her own advice. She's sitting here right now playing with her food, toying with her enemy, not just finishing the job. Who knows what the ramifications of that could be down the road, but she's so focused on her own rage and fueled by it that she can't see that big picture ever or her own hypocrisy. And then there's Jamie and Cersei. He's taken his hand off and he hides his stump when she enters his chambers because he's still ashamed of losing the the symbolic source of his strength and his manliness and his worth was always that sword hand. And Cersei has not been kind to him about it. She's made him feel ashamed. She she, has made him feel diminished. 100%. She got a zombie Kingsguard to guard her person because she doesn't think he can do it. Right. But suddenly she's okay with it. Right. Suddenly she's okay with it. Everything. With a whole lot of stuff. She's good with them being seen nude and yep. well and in certain states of undress. Right. She's wearing a little bathrobe with Jamie in bed. When Cersei's maid comes knocking at the door, 
Jamie's like, what are you doing? You can't let people see us like this. And she just is like, I'm the queen. Yeah. I'm good. She is kind of fully stopped caring about the optics, which is which is interesting because she simultaneously tries to use symbolism in her favor and has has stopped caring about yeah. what people think. You can't really have it both ways. The amazing moment when she says to her her handmaiden, who is there to inform her that the visitor from Bravos has arrived, <laughs> good, then we'll need fresh sheets. Yeah. What's she got planned here? I know. She's maybe going to take Tycho into the bed? Seems like it's a possibility. I found the weirdest moment of the episode to me was Jamie laughing at that. Yeah. He would not find that funny. It he was a weird, horrified. it was like very rom-com in that that segment. <laughs> was just, it was a weird tonal shift. And then Cersei's exchange with the banker. Yeah. To become the first ruling queen of the Seven Kingdoms, he says. Yeah. That's quite an accomplishment. The Iron Bank appreciates how you cast off the yoke of superstition, freeing <laughs> the crown from those who sought to subvert the rule of law. She's like, oh, uh, what happened in the Sept was a tragic accident. A tragic I don't know what you accident. mean. And he's like, indeed. Yeah. Uh-huh, wink, wink, nod, nod. But sometimes tragedies are necessary to restore order and leadership. He is crediting Cersei yep. for acquiring this symbolic strength that comes from the atrocities she committed, but she's running from the substance of what she did. She can't acknowledge it. And this is where the connections to Tywin begin to surface. Again, the sins or the legacies of the father. Your father never minced words either, he says to her. And then later he echoes this, your father's daughter indeed. For so long, that's all Cersei would have wanted to hear, for someone to compare her to Tywin. But in many ways, she has cast off Tywin's legacy. It's ours now, she That's keeps right. saying to Jamie. Let's take it. Well, she's not only assessing her own family, she is assessing her enemy as well. All and the she time. says of Danny during this bank application exchange. Yeah, right. Or it's like a, an extension. An extension. That's right. On the payment. Long overdue at yeah. this point. Long overdue. Her assessment of Danny really hinges on the idea of what a safe bet should be. Right. From what I gather, Cersei says, she considers herself more of a revolutionary than a monarch. In your experience, how do bankers usually fare with revolutionaries? The Lannisters owe the Iron Bank quite a bit of money, but Lannisters always pay their debts. Do former slaves or Dothraki or dragons? Hmm. She's basically saying all you know about this person are what the symbols that she's presenting to the world are. You see her sigil, you see her show of strength, but is that enough? You know who I am. Let's talk about Euron and his fantastic theatrics. If you're going to talk a big game, you got to back that shit up. Mm-hmm. Euron is flashy, but he brings it. Season seven, Euron is a master troll, a flashy figure. He will hit on your sister slash wife slash girlfriend right in front of you. Does she like it gentle? Does she like it rough? Crucially, though, he made good on his promise to Cersei, and that's what lets him act in this way. Mocking Jamie is an extension of one of the core Ironborn traits. Strength above all else. Weakness, perceived and real, is something to be exploited, to be mocked. Once, when Jamie had two hands, busting the Kingslayer's balls would have been a death sentence. And when Jamie mentions Balon's rebellion and the, the bad way it ended for the Greyjoys, Euron delights in the opportunity to remind Jamie that he knows firsthand what Jamie used to be. He says, I remember very well. I saw you. I heard so much talk, the best in the world. No one could stop him. I didn't believe it, to be honest, but I must say, when you rushed through the breach and started cutting people down, it was glorious. Like a dance. 
Contrast Theon now to Euron. How can the Ironborn respect someone like Theon when everything he symbolizes is something they outwardly loathe? I couldn't save her, he says. And then the captain says, you wouldn't be here if you tried. They respect strength. And when it comes to style and substance alike, Theon just lacks all of it. And then Euron, he's being acclaimed in the throne room and he sidles up to to Jamie. He says, there's nothing quite like it, is there? The love of the people, though I suppose you wouldn't know. Um <laughs> And Jamie says, this same mob spat at my sister not long ago. If you turn on us, they will cheer to see your head mounted on a spike. Or yours. They just like severed heads, really. Listen, if you have any advice at all, I'd love to hear it when we have an hour or two to speak as brothers. Advice? Does she like it gentle and rough? A finger in the bomb? (laughs) And then Jamie looks absolutely irate. And also like mad at himself because there's nothing he can do. And Euron says, shh, 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 not now. Jamie's not used to letting people shame him no. that way. Very unfamiliar and uncomfortable sensation. No. Well, Jamie, thankfully for himself, didn't have to spend the whole episode with Euron. He had to go out into the field while his brother's plans yes. were failing at Casterly Rock. Jamie was making a move on Highgarden. And sadly for us, our boo, Olena, had made it back One home. One of the greats. Had made it back home. So... Basing March Madness picks on which team symbol is the toughest, the most vicious, the most dangerous. That's a common NCAA noob conceit, right? The orange. Totally. I've done I have done that. Color fruit. That's not gonna work for me. Listen, if I'm filling out like multiple brackets, you just gotta you gotta change up your strategies. Go cuse and fear the turtle. But (laughs) it's also, an idea that Lady Olena puts a lot of stuff in. Weirdly. Yes. When Jamie enters her chambers. What does she quote? She this quotes the reigns yep. of Castamere, the Lannister anthem about yep. taking down a rival yep. rising house. And now the reigns weep o'er our halls. Did we fight well? She wants to know. Yeah. And Jamie's like, kind of shrugs and is like, you know, as well as could be expected. We don't see this battle, by the way, which no. is like a little yeah. it's like just I don't love it. Not great. No. And Elena says, well, it was never our forte. Golden roses indeed. And she's made this kind of complaint, this criticism yeah. about the symbol of House Tyrell before. Back in season three, when the Queen of Thorns had recently arrived in King's Landing and around her, the young noble women of House Tyrell sat with making their needlepoint roses. Do you like it? Nana. Yeah. <laughs> and Olena just openly mocks her own family's yeah. sigil, growing strong. Ha, the dullest words of any house. Winter is coming. Now that's memorable. We do not sow. Strong, strong. Those are houses you watch yeah. out for. Direwolves and krakens, fierce beasts. But a golden rose growing strong. Ah, that strikes fear in the heart. And now the lion, the fiercest beast yep. in the kingdom. Other than the dragons. <laughs> Has like vanquished. The yeah, and the wolves. The wolves are good. But in like our world, yeah. where there aren't dire wolves and yeah. dragons, people really sure, are scared sure, of the lions. Sure. The lion has vanquished the rose. There's also some really potent symbolism yeah. in Jamie's strategy, his battle time strategy here, boiling down. And he owns this. He actually boasts about this. Boiling down to, Rob Stark taught me yep. this trick. Split the troops. Don't go where they expect you to go. He says to Elena, as Rob Stark did to me at Whispering Wood. This was, of course, remember, Jamie was captured because the bulk right. of Rob's forces went where Tywin and Jamie were not expecting. 
there are always lessons in failures, Jamie says. And Elena has just, she's crushing it at the end yeah. here. Yes, you must be very wise by now. <laughs> and we just can't appreciate enough that Olena chose to spend her final moments of life shitting on Cersei and confessing to Joffrey's murder. It is that important to her to bring the Lannisters, specifically Cersei, more pain, more anguish. That is what her life is about at this point. All of the symbols, the gold, the beauty, the roses, yeah. Marjorie, Loras, every that's all gone. gone. That's been torn down. The substance is her hatred. That's yep. all that's left. She's a monster. Do you know that? She says to Jamie. You love her. You really do love her. You poor fool. She'll be the end of you. This is a pretty chilling moment, yeah. especially for prophecy Valencar heads out there. Yeah. And then after she drinks the poison, she knows. She knows what she's doing. They're having an open conversation about this. <laughs> she asks if it's going to be painful. And Jamie says, no, you know, I saw to that. And she chugs and says, good. I'd hate to die like your son, clawing at my neck, foam and bile spilling from my mouth, eyes blood red, skin purple. Must have been horrible for you as a Kingsguard, <laughs> as a father. It was horrible enough for me, a shocking scene. Not at all what I intended. And this is where Jamie's his yeah. eyes bulge, his face contorts. You see, she continues. I'd never seen the poison work before. And he's just overcome with fury right. and rage and probably regret for not giving her a more painful death at this point. And she says, tell Cersei, I want her to know. Wow. It was me. Littlefinger, Bran, and Sansa. You know, Bran's experiences surfing the boundless expanse of time and space through the roots of the Weirwoods has altered him. His thoughts and experiences can no longer be conveyed by mere semiotics, by words. And try as Sansa might, she can't get Bran to stop speaking in riddles, in circles. The substance of his green sight has overwhelmed his powers of communication. Sansa says, your father's last living son, you're the Lord of Winterfell, dude. And Bran's like, I can never be the Lord of Winterfell. I can never be the Lord of anything. I'm the Three-Eyed Raven. Sansa's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> Bran is, Bran is all. It's difficult to explain. Yeah, no shit. Notable. Bran can travel through time, but apparently, like talking is very hard now. Even Littlefinger is speaking in riddles. To be fair, Sansa's newfound assertiveness appears to have truly shaken him. She has no need for Littlefinger anymore, and she is making it. Fucking obvious, Littlefinger says. Uh, the Northerners are all facing north, worried about the threat beyond the wall, which is a strange construction considering he's talking to a northern lady. Just very weird, like he shook. And Sansa says, so they should be. Littlefinger, I know Cersei better than anyone here. If you're turning your back on her, Sansa breaks in. You don't know Cersei better than anyone else here. I only meant to say that the woman who murdered my father, mother, and brother is dangerous. Thank you for your wise counsel. And that sends Littlefinger off like on a full-blown peaking on acid at a fish show tangent that is like truly Bran Stark-esque quality in its stonerificity. A Littlefinger goes on to say, and this is like fucking incredible. One of two things will happen. Either the dead will defeat the living, in which case all our troubles will come to an end, or life will win out. And what then? And then there's like this bubbling of like a bong. Don't fight in the north or the south. Fight every battle, everywhere, always in your mind. Everyone is your enemy. Everyone is your friend. 
Every possible series of events is happening all at once. Live that way and nothing will surprise you. Everything that will happen will be something that you've seen before. Dude, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> he literally sounds like he's describing green scene. Yeah, I mean, like, it's really weird. Um, the thing for Sansa that is so strange is she's dealing with substantive concerns, everyday concerns. Like, let's get the North ready for the shit that's happening. And then these two guys in her life are like speaking like they just ate all the pot brownies. It's bizarre. Sansa's just like very impressive competence in command ties back to a statement that John says when, when Tyrion says of Sansa, she's much smarter than she lets on. And then John says she's starting to let on. She really is. She really is. Ferris and Mel. Brief but beautiful moment between these two. Varys really can't wait to note that Melisandre is basically all style, all right. flash. But where is the substance? Why are you so afraid to see the people you just campaigned to bring here? I wondered why you weren't there to meet our guests. It's like, where were you? Yeah. Dude. You begged us to summon the King of the North. Don't you want to see him again? I've done my part, Mel says. I've brought ice and fire. Together. Dun, dun, dun. Quite a boast, but yeah. also arguably like the most kind of crucial right. substantive thing yes. that there is. And they discuss basically their roles in the realm as relates to the sovereign that they're supporting in a given moment or trying to rise. Varys says, give us common folk one taste of power. We're like the lion who tasted man. Nothing is ever so sweet again. And Mel notes, neither of us is common folk anymore. Yeah. But have they changed in substance right? or just in symbolic ways? Because Melisandre admits, you know, that they she did not part with John and Davos yes. on good terms. And when Varys asks why, she says, because of mistakes I made, terrible mistakes. I would only be a distraction. But then when Varys asks where she'll go and she says Volantis, he says, good, if you don't mind my saying, I don't think you should return to Westeros. I'm not sure you'd be safe here. And she says, oh. I will return, dear spider, one last time. I have to die in this strange country just like you. Hmm. Well, he looks properly disturbed by that comment. And it does beg this question. Has Melisandre changed? Because she just said yeah. that her days of, you know, whispering in King's ears are through, which is like a subtle little dig at, at Varys, yeah. master of whisperers himself. But that thing she just said to him... I have to die in this strange country just like you is exactly the kind of prophetic, creepy seer shit that she used to routinely pull. Sam and Ebro's in the morning and Jorah. Sam asks Jorah, where are you going to go? And Jorah says, I surrendered to this sickness the moment I first saw it. I knew it would kill me and I'd kill myself before it could. Daenerys Stormborn convinced me otherwise. The only place for me is back with her. I owe my life to her and you. And P.S. Like Danny could really use a military advisor right now. Um, Sam says, your father saved me more than once, the least I could do. And Jorah says, perhaps our paths will cross again. I hope they do. And Sam reaches out his hand. And this is like a, a really, this is a moment rich with symbolism that like, just so they reach out and Sam grasps his hand and then Jorah is honored. And then he brings the other hand in for the double grip. And it's this really touching moment. Like, yeah, we did it. Like, I believe that you're cured. 
Um, it was wonderful. Ebro's, meanwhile, in the morning, is more concerned with the substance of Sam's foolishness. You could have infected yourself and others. You could have devastated the entire Citadel, but you didn't. It's a meticulous and difficult procedure. Many macers whose chains are heavy with healing links have attempted it and failed, yet you succeeded how? And Sam's just like, I don't know. I just, like, look, read the instructions. Like, <laughs> it wasn't that hard. Right. Uh and then Ebros says, that man is alive because of you. You should be proud. Thank you, Archmaester. Yeah. And then he shows him the manuscripts and all the things. Like, these these are rotting away. I need you to make copies of them. And then Sam kind of makes a face. Oh, you were expecting a reward? Your reward is you're not getting Kyburn, Kyburn, out of this place because you're breaking rules. So get started. Be careful of the paper mites. They like flesh as well. Hey, guys. Just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to binge mode. Jason? Yeah! What was the longest winter of the past hundred years? I gotta, I gotta check the records. How much food do we have? How long will it last? Why, for the love of all that's good and holy, isn't there leather on those breastplates? We need answers. We know that winter's arrival spells the coming of the long night and the night king. It's all John talks about. But what does winter's arrival mean for the common folk, for the lords and ladies trying to keep yep. those people alive? The logistics, the real everyday challenges. John has taught us to think about the big threat, the big picture. You should listen to the Big Picture Podcast with Great Sean Fennessy on the Ringer Podcast Network. But what about the harsh everyday realities of the season that the Starks have long warned us about arriving at last? Now that the snows are falling and the grain is being counted. Maester, please assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about preparing for winter. Winter prep. Winter is coming, guys. The stark words aren't merely a warning. They're a call to action. After all, winter, when it comes, it has to be survived. That requires planning. It requires preparation. Luckily, Sansa understands the stakes and knows what to do. I, I really like love this scene in which Sansa is like running the show, giving orders to Roy's and Wolken and dunking like very savagely two-handed on Littlefinger, all while trademark Sorkin walk talking around Winterfell. It's great. And it's an incredible place for the once callow daughter of Ned Stark to find herself. But more than that, more than her arc. Um, I love this scene because it's a scene that takes a magical aspect of this world, the unpredictable length of seasons, and it makes it feel real by putting it through a very human lens. Do we have enough to eat? Do we have enough to eat if people flee here? Where do we put the people when they flee here? Are we ready not just to survive the cold, but fight in it? These are issues that House Stark has been managing successfully for centuries, and that's a major reason that they're so revered. Um, so one of the aspects of of Winter prep is the Wintertown. The Wintertown is the center of commerce in the Winterfell area, and come winter, an important resource for the people in the north. Um, the brothel that Tyrion set up camp in in season one is located there, and when Rob called his banners, many of the lords of the north and their retinue stayed in the Wintertown. The town is located outside the walls of the castle by the main gate. There's 
like farmers market stalls there for produce. The love places, the farmers market. I love the farmers market. It's fresh, <laughs> you know, fresh hunting catch. It's mostly quiet in the summer, but the town really swells in the autumn and, and winter as small folk from all over the north who find themselves for whatever reason in dire straits. Maybe they didn't plan as well. Maybe they just don't have the kind of holdings that allow them to stock food in the way you need to. They come to Winterfell to seek the protection, the patronage of the Starks. And the Starks plan for this. House Stark has always laid more food by than it needs has always um, managed shipments of food. Who's got extra food? Ship it to the people who don't have enough. Um, these are the things that they manage and they're very good at it. Even still, even with all this preparation, if winter stretches for years, as Sansa noted, how, how long could it last? Four years, five years, six years? Yeah. Things get very lean and it gets dark. It's a tradition in the North for elderly or infirm family members to announce that they're going hunting, which is basically a euphemism for going outside and just committing suicide, allowing yourself to die so that the younger, stronger members of the family can live. Um, this shows the true importance of the Stark words. Surviving winter means preparing all through summer and winter. It means never letting yourself forget that winter is coming. And unfortunately for Sansa, the last years of summer and fall were marred by a war that sapped the region's manpower. Men who would normally have been bringing in crops or fishing or hunting were in the South, dying in large numbers. Castle Black is also concerning, also concerns itself with preparing for winter all the time. Snows fall deep at the foot of the wall. To get around this, um, there are tunnels around Castle Black called Wormways that allow access to basically every single part of the castle. And that's where the storerooms are located behind padlock doors to prevent pilferage. These are all criminals, after all. Um, and that's always an issue when winter falls. In the books, Bowen Marsh advises John to consider placing guards in the Wormways to ward off thievery. And some of the storerooms sit under the wall. These are these are used for long-term meat storage. Um, in the books, even after the longest summer in living memory, it's better than 10 years now that it's over, the watches stores could support the brothers for only three years. Four with some scrimping, Marsh says. Castle Black wasn't even fully staffed, remember? There was like 100 dudes there, and they, they've right. got food for three, four years. When Stannis and his troops arrived, John fed them out of the watches' winter stores. And worse, war on the continent, particularly the Riverlands, means it's not safe to bring wagons up the King's Road. Marsh suggests bringing supplies by ship. That's expensive. Expensive, though, and, you know, now there is a uh, enemy fleet, Euron's fleet, that is patrolling the seas. Would that even be safe? Brothers can always go out and hunt the gift, of course, but this is going to be more difficult now because now thousands of wildlings live there. Um, another thing goes on in the winter, price gouging. Unscrupulous merchants can make a killing in the autumn and the winter. When Arya stops in at the inn at the crossroads, she overhears two traders talking about doing just this. In the books, Littlefinger stops all shipments of food from leaving the Vale in order to drive the prices up. And when it's pointed out to him that other lords, uh, particularly Royce, have ports of their own and they could sell grain and they'll get me, they're going to be making money all this time while, while they're just sitting, Littlefinger and his people are just sitting on their hands, Littlefinger responds that uh, since Royce's granaries will be empty – once winter comes, he'll have no choice but to buy from them at exorbitant prices. And then there's winter warfare. The Northerners, obviously, they're going to be better at this than anyone. War is hell. Winter war is especially hell, but the Northmen have over a thousand of years adapted. Um, they use smaller horses with thick coats, and they equip them with snowshoes, little horsey snowshoes. <laughs> and the Northern warriors wear snowshoes themselves. They're, they're adept at winter camouflage and dance with dragons. The Northerners tie branches to their helmets and cloaks to blend into the foliage. And P.S., this is why kings in the north, as a general rule of thumb, shouldn't really ride south. The north has never been conquered by a southern army. Not for any serious period of time. There's been invasions, but you can't hold the north. It's too big. They've said this in the show. Not even the Andals could penetrate it. And even if they did, even if you got a toehold in the north, at some point, winter is going to fall. And then you just don't know how to handle it the way the northerners do. I'm glad we have blankets in here. 
Yeah. It's chilly in the studio today. Mister? Yeah. Give us common podcasters one taste of power. Yeah. We're like the lion who tasted man. Mm. Nothing is ever so sweet again. Except for those plot nuggets that we love so much. So let's head to the SEP to bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, lightning round style. You go first. What's number one? Number one, a lot of people have been asking about this. Cersei referencing the Iron Bank's investments in the slave trade is interesting considering that Bravos was founded by freed slaves. Lots of people have been asking. I feel two ways about this plot point. One, it's kind of lazy in just the way the show appears possibly unaware that Bravos was founded by escaped slaves. There's a million like ways that you could have mentioned it, and then there's a million other things that Cersei could have brought up that could have been arguments against Danny. And two, like if they really tried, it's kind of defensible in the sense that slavery is legal in every other free city in Essos. Therefore, it would be virtually impossible for Bravos to not invest in something that was somehow tied into the slave trade. That said, this is like a slapdash thing that I'm against. It's tough. Yeah. Really tough. Number two, a lot of talk about scrolls. Scrolls. In this episode, guys. What does it mean? Well, definitely something. We had two key instances. The first is in Winterfell, where after watching sports, Sansa is chatting with the assembled, and she's asking Maester Wolken about the length of winter. Yeah. And he says... Basically, that he's going to go look into it. He's going to do right. some research. Where? I'll check Maester Lewin's records. He kept a copy of every Raven scroll. The little finger looks at him. Right. He, when he, he gives a little, little double take. scrunched eyed oh. side eye oh, thing. Oh, the scrolls. Oh, memorable scrolls. Memorable scrolls. This means something. Will someone discover information in the scrolls about John's parentage? Will, as you posed brilliantly in your Maester column Gosh, this week, you, no? Somebody discover something about Littlefinger's dagger. Yeah. His, who knows, role? Yes, maybe. Something yeah. about the assassination attempt on Bran's life. We see the cat's paw blade in these scenes for next week, in yeah. the preview for next week. Something is coming to a head here. And then, of course, at the Citadel, when Ebros asks Sam to copy over these scrolls, it's just that doesn't happen unless Sam is going yeah. to discover something of note, of value in those scrolls. So this is exciting. It seems like some of the information that we're really desperate to glean and that we're yeah. desperate for these characters to glean is is just a couple taps of the Kindle away. <laughs> Number three, the sheer volume of Rhaegar foreshadowing is getting me very hype. The reveal is coming, guys. I mean, there's, first of all, the constant... Uh, don't judge the children by the father. My father said this. That's been happening the whole time. And then this episode we get, just as John says, I'm not a Stark. Rhaegal, named, <laughs> named for John's father, buzzes him right over his head. Vroom. And then Danny says, as they meet, uh, you know, in, on that kind of um, balcony, on that part of the walkway overlooking the bay there, watching the dragons fly. She says, I named them for my brothers. Viserys and Rhaegar. Yeah, guys, it's coming. It's coming. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I cannot wait. Number four. Danny being willing to name John, who is a bastard, Warden of the North, speaks well 
and generate some excitement here for what role Gendry could still have in this sure. story, potentially. We all know, worst kept secret in the world, a worse kept secret than Cersei and Jamie right. boning, yeah. is yeah. that Gendry is coming back coming in back. season seven. He is going to be on the show again. In what capacity? Well, we don't know, but maybe he actually becomes a pawn that Danny can use. Ah, son of Robert Baratheon? Let's do it. Let me make this work in my favor. Maybe she'll be willing to view him as something more than just a bastard. Number five, Cersei's made haircut fan theory about the handmaiden being a faceless man because why? I think people are just like the camera yeah, when the door way- opens really lingers on her. Like the fact that she has is rocking like a matching haircut with Cersei. Which is, is like, like fantastic. It is incredible. So it's either like Cersei's making her servants yes. get matching haircuts, which is That's delightful. exactly what she's doing. But it's just, it draws the yeah. eye so forcefully because it's so strange that I guess people have just started asking, well, could that be someone nefarious could it be aria wearing a face could it be another faceless man now again this is where we we did warn you at the top that we were going to consider the scenes for next week we do see what appears to be aria on horseback approaching winterfell she has indicated that she will be heading north i think guys we should just maybe accept that a good thing is about to happen and that aria is going to go home number six did olena and euron do enough damage here Mm. to push the Valonqar theory It's forward. edging that way. Jamie has been just so fully Team Cersei this right. whole season that it's been a real blow to yeah. our... It's a very substantial <laughs> blow. Trust is a blow. real blow. Just a grab on. Just an incredible... What a blow it was. What a blow it was. <laughs> to uh. our cherished and deeply held belief that Jamie will fulfill the Valonqar portion of the prophecy. Right. He seems really into Cersei right now, but yep. hearing Olena refer to her as a monster yep. and just shred her and trash her and to see what lengths that person was willing to go to try to bring Cersei down, maybe that will leave a mark on Jamie, or maybe Euron will, because it's important to remember that in the books, the thing that really drives these two apart is that Jamie feels betrayed. Yes. He's never been with another woman. Which is... But Cersei... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's absurd. But But Cersei, she's just out there, like, taking a tumble with the the Kettle Blacks, you know? Shouts to the Kettle Blacks with Lancel. Lancel. Number seven. what a stupid name. (laughs) Number seven, Tyrion's Gash Cave. Listen, guys. Here's the thing about Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion was like, I need to get laid so bad that I'm going to, like, go find some contractors and build a tunnel up from the sea to some other part of the castle, and like that's the lengths I'm willing to go to. Shouts to Tyrion and his sex tunnel. Shouts to Tyrion. Yeah. Well, Mal, mm. you love this week's champion. You really mm. do. You poor fool. Do I? She'll be the end of you. Each episode, we're going to honor the person, play the game, and advance his or her cause in some tangible way. And this week, the winner of our champion's purse sees something she likes. Mama, see what she likes. <laughs> Cersei Lannister. Cersei, what an episode for Cersei. Queen's Justice, indeed. She got revenge on Alaria, who killed her daughter. Yep. Can't say that enough. She got revenge on Olena, one of her real rivals and true enemies throughout this story since Olena arrived in it. And she managed, for now, to please Euron, to 
like kind of keep him content. Oh, okay. You said you're going to marry me. Good. I'll chill for a bit. Who knows how long that will last? Probably not long. But for now, he seems like he's having a great time. He's having a good time himself. He's got his shirt hanging open. He looks great. Making finger in the butt jokes. (laughs) He looks great. She has gotten her servants to (laughs) rock matching haircuts. Just amazing. Again, this is tremendous. Yeah. She is now. Engaging in sexual intercourse with Jamie basically out in the open. She right has there. stopped letting fear rule her life. Yeah. And she has secured the Iron Bank's patience, right? Patience at worst. Right. Allegiance at best. She's buying her time. She's saying, give me a couple weeks. And she's on the pathway there for success. Who knows what will happen? It's a big country. Just because people seem to be getting around very quickly doesn't mean that everything will go smoothly from here. But in right. theory, she's on, she's on the path to success there. And of course, most crucially of all, she won huge, huge she's games right over Danny. She is crushing Danny. Danny thought she was sitting pretty. I mean, part of the hubris and the arrogance that is on display throughout her conversation with John is that basically she's just like, I don't need you. I'm good. I've got my Unsullied. I've got the Dothraki. I've got dragons. And I have key Westerosi allies. But her fleet is in shambles now. The Greyjoys, that's not going great. Yara's a prisoner. Some portion of her army is like across the continent where she can't get to it. Right. She no longer has Dorne. She no longer has yeah. the Iron Islands, really. I mean, Theon's going to try to make his way back, presumably. But what good is that, really? What good is Theon, really? And, of course, she lost the Tyrells. She lost Highgarden. She lost control over the Reach. Not only the riches and the resources that House Tyrell provided, but the strategic importance of that area on the map. She thought she could take her time and wait and choose her moment to hit King's Landing. And instead of gaining, she is losing. And who is she losing to? Cersei. Cersei. Cersei is winning. Now, you could make the argument, as we did on Talk to Thrones on Sunday briefly, that Cersei's winning is so damaging to Danny that it could be the thing that finally brings Danny and John together, right. which is bad for Cersei if that happens. But right now in this moment, Cersei is crushing it and Danny is crushed. All right, guys, if we don't put aside our enmities and band together, we will die. True. And then it doesn't matter whose skeleton sits the Iron Throne or who hosts binge mode. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us again next week when we will be discussing Season 7, Episode 4, The Spoils of War. Cannot wait to see that yeah, dagger. Yeah, very excited. Boy, and Drogon in the trailer. Oof. He just looks great. Nice and big and beautiful. Mm. We also hope that you will check out all of the other great Game of Thrones coverage on The Ringer. Please, please tune in for Talk the Thrones live on Sunday night on Twitter after the episode of Game of Thrones. Check out our pals Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald on The Watch on the Ringer Podcast Network. They go deep on Thrones on Monday as well. Obviously, read Jason's just exemplary. Ask the Maester column on Tuesdays and check in for his live video session on Tuesday. I mean, Milton. Milton, our direwolf. You're you're direwolf. I'm saying R. I just love him a lot. He was there. He was on set this week. It was great. He's really good with it. Check in for that. He's so scholarly and wise and handsome. Read the staff precaps. Check out the Sunday recaps and everything in between. There's a lot. Please consume it. Until next week, remember, we'll need fresh sheets. There's sex on these.
Find the eternal lotus. Watch it bloom before you. See the ancient wisdom there blooming. Everyone is your friend. Everyone is your lover. Everyone is your father. Everyone is your mother. Everyone is your dog. Everyone is your god, which is dog spelled backwards. (laughs) 